0: Amen, amen, good morning. Uh, So unlike our last few weeks, uh, this text is definitely for every one of us. Uh, Paul speaks to three uh, common enemies that exist within every one of our hearts. And so we're gonna see, especially throughout this letter of 1 Timothy, that if we don't hold to sound doctrine, sound affection, and sound practice, The church will be dysfunctional and led astray. Um, So it is fitting that we left off with the statement that is kind of a a Janus statement, um, meaning looking back and looking forward, where uh, Paul says to teach and urge these things. That is certainly true for what we talked about last week, and it is absolutely true for what we talk about this week. And so since our text is loaded with application and self-explanatory, I won't do much by way of introduction Um, But what I want you to notice as we begin to read, we begin to walk through, there are three sections here, but the heart of our text is a heart of contentment. And that section is sandwiched between the enemy of false doctrine and the enemy of false desires. So the heart of contentment, on one side, the false doctrines that lead some astray and the other side, the false desires that lead some astray. And I think uh, we can read the necessity for contentment through this entire text. So I'm going to begin reading in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, and um, actually 2C, it would be the, the last part of 2, uh, through verse 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we, can take any, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning... We're just in awe of your greatness and your love and your mercy and your grace for us. That we sinners who have idol factories in our hearts, we would create anything and everything in our own image that we would not bow before you. But we praise you that you knew the wickedness of our hearts. You sent your son to die in our place and you sent your spirit to seal us and preserve us and shape us into the image of Christ. We praise you for this. Lord, we pray for our hearts that we wrestle against like the Apostle Paul. The things that we do that we don't want to do. The things that we keep doing. Lord, may you convict our hearts this morning. May you expose the idols within each one of us. May you guard us against false doctrine. May you guard us against desires for riches and manly appeal and power and gain. Would you create in our hearts a spirit of contentment, of love and joy and peace and rest in our Savior. Would you build up your people, that we might glorify you, that we might find all our contentment, all our satisfaction, all our sufficiency in the true and living God, that Christ would be glorified in this place and across the globe until the day of his return. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so I want you to see the repetition that begins in verse 3. The repetition, the emphasis on doctrine, sound words, teaching. Uh, This text actually begins with and ends with an adherence to sound doctrine, to faithfulness. So when Paul ends here that some have wandered away from the faith, that is the accepted pattern of true doctrine. Uh, It is clear in the early church, as throughout history, There has been acceptable biblical doctrine that is embraced, that was taught by Christ, continued by the apostles, and passed down throughout the ages. But, as we saw in 1 Timothy, as we see in many New Testament texts, many wander from the truth. This is why, as churches, it is important that we have statements of faith, that we declare these things. This is why we, we, we hold to confessions and, 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 and we hold with the, the faithfulness throughout the ages of the, the creedal statements of the apostolic church. Because there is sound doctrine that is right and true, orthodoxy. There is heterodoxy, that is literally the word that's here in the text, that is other doctrine, and there's no shortage of those. And there's no shortage of those who want to draw people aside. And so, how do we know what a different doctrine is? How do we identify heter- heterodoxy from orthodoxy? Well, Paul says here, if anyone teaches, so there is a promotion, a promulgation of different doctrine, he gives two markers, and they, they continue to stand. What does not agree with, number one, The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and what agrees with them. So if they're teaching anything contrary to what Christ taught, to the authority given to the apostles, what we have uh, contained in the scriptures. Uh, I look at one verse here. Uh, I think this this helps us to understand the authority that we have in the scriptures. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Just one verse. So Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. And he gives the warning to the cities. Here's what he tells the ones that he sends out The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You see this this, this chain of authority. The Father sent the Son, the Son sends out his ambassadors. And when they embrace the words of the Son, when they hear the voice of the shepherd through the mouths of under shepherds and servants, they are following the Son and, and then obeying the Father. And so the, the, the church father, um, John Chrysostom, puts it like this, uh, thus saith Christ by way of Paul. And so when we, when we think about the authority of, of Scripture, It is the words of the Son, by the Spirit, through the saints, according to the Scriptures. And so this is how we judge right doctrine. Is it clear that it's consistent with what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught? Are the teachers faithful? Are the explanations and the interpretations faithful? And so we think about that all the way down to us. We are sent out, apostolos, lowercase a, from our Savior. The the, the Great Commission is a, is a sending statement. Go to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all my commandments. And I all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so under Christ's authority, by Christ's teaching, we create disciples. We we grow disciples according to the Spirit in conjunction with the Scriptures. Um, This is God's plan for the building and structuring of his church. And so that's important for us to understand that the power does not come from our words. That the men who try to be creative and bring all of their new ideas into the pulpit are saying that what Christ said is not enough. That I need to add to the gospel, I need to make it more appealing. I need to add the wisdom of man to the wisdom of God. How foolish is that? But what a great comfort that is when we preach and teach and we evangelize, that the power is in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That there's, if there's any life, if there's any efficacy in what we say, it does not come from me. It does not come from you. And so we appeal to the Savior and the sayings of the Savior and those who he trained and those who he sent out And those who they trained and they sent out, and those who they trained and they sent out. And here we are, the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same Scriptures 2,000 years later. And Christ is still being preached. That is the power of our teaching. And so that's number one. Number two, Paul says here, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and does not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness... So godly practice always walks alongside godly doctrine. Doctrine should always lead to and agree with our practice. And I will say, any doctrine that does not lead to godliness is worthless. If it does not exalt Christ and cause us to believe and obey Christ, we are wasting our breath. Paul gives the same idea at the beginning of Titus. Titus, the the, the first two verses here, he draws this together. Paul, a servant of God, if you're in First uh, Timothy Titus, just two books to the right, probably two pages in your Bible. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Notice what he ties together here. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And then he goes on to say, uh, not on the screen, this truth, this, ho- this uh, godliness is in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That is that is ministry, truth that leads to godliness, that was re- revealed in Christ and proclaimed for hope and eternal life, not hope in an identity in this life. That will be contrasted as we continue to go on. So I want you to, Keep that in mind as we think about sound doctrine. It accords with and agrees with what Christ taught. It also leads to and accords with godliness in our lives. There are more marks of this false teacher, of this, this enemy of godliness. He goes on in verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So, we're going to talk about two things here what he is and what he has. Here's his identity. Here's his his, his being. He is puffed up with conceit. He is delusional. The uh, Greek here is very pictorial. It's his head is in the clouds. He is so puffed up. His head is so lofty. But he lacks the love of the Lord. He he rests so much in his own mind, in his own ignorant, in his own intellect. This is someone who is yet so so smart, yet so stupid. So the mixing of the puffed up with conceit, this is the arrogance of the intellect. The arrogance of the intellect. I know so much, and I am so smart, and I am trusting so much in myself that Paul says it results in understanding nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you think you are so smart that you need nothing else to be added to you, you know nothing. We begin by emptying ourselves and dying of ourselves. But false teachers love the sound of their own voice. They love the attention of their own name. They love being the smartest one in the room, being told how smart they are, and this is tough. Because for, for, for men, this is, a, this is a very tempting pride. But they, they show themselves in their identity. But then he goes on. This is who they are. This is what they have. He has, he possesses an unhealthy craving. This is, in the Greek, this is a, a sick obsession. He is unhealthy. He is unwell with his craving for controversy. He loves to fight about words. You ever have that, that, that friend in high school, the one who just like, just can't wait to get into a fight, just loves to argue, maybe you got that, that friend in college, who, who loves to argue. Um, I think we, we know how dangerous this is because how quickly people love to get into philosophical and theological arguments. They love quarrels. Not about primary issues. It's always secondary issues, tertiary issues. They spend more time creating division within the body of Christ than, than, than unity. I know many of us in our cage stage, some of you are still in it, <laughs> love controversy more than you love seeing people grow in godliness. You loved winning arguments more than you cared that someone was perishing. You loved being right more than you loved loving your brother. We know how damaging this can be when you take essential things, unessential things, and you make them essential. And so when this is borne out, the one who has a puffed up heart, this craving gives forth to this, this list of descriptive behaviors, these divisive behaviors. Before we get on to that, um, we've had people in this congregation, I'm sure you, you know some of them, uh, who every time you meet with them, every time you try to reason them, with them, there's a new thing. What about this? This is the thing we must be upset about right now. And this is the thing we must be upset about right right now. Um, As a a young, naive pastor, I tried to reason with them. Um, But as I grow, I have less and less patience for that. Like, if you won't take counsel, if you care more for arguing, this probably is not the church for you. The door is over there. Uh, This is also what Paul says in Titus. And uh, this is a verse I go to often. Because our culture doesn't like church discipline. But Paul speaks about division more than almost anything else, right next to sound doctrine. Paul says here in Titus chapter 3 verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you don't see the importance of unity in the body of Christ, if you don't see the great mercy and grace you have been given, that caused you to love the Lord who loved you enough to send his son to lay down his life for you, that you would stand arm in arm with with, with another brother who may be immature in one way or another, you missed the whole point. There is no theological uh, divisions within the kingdom of God. There's not the Reformed Arminian section. There's not the Baptist Methodist section. But this craving, if you truly are puffed up with conceit, and that's, that's, that's a lighter version. But if left unchecked, it can begin to grow. So this one who has a healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, look at this, this, this list. You get the idea. We don't have to go into each one of these. But it produces envy, produces dissension, which is competition or contention between one another. Produces slander, we know what that is, accusing one of the other. Evil suspicions and constant friction. This irritable, combative nature. You ever been in a church? There was a time in this church when I didn't like coming to church on Sunday morning. Because I knew that there were going to be people who were just waiting to pounce on me or someone else. That constant combative friction should not be known among the people of God. And so what what produces this and what does it appeal to? Paul continues. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. Let's talk about that for a moment. Those who are depraved in mind. Um, contention, division, arguments, this is like a dog whistle for those who are depraved. Oh, you, you, you've got a new juicy piece of gossip, so and so said this, so and so did this, you got an argument, you got a fight, I'm in. It's like the uh, meatheads in, uh, in, in high school, like can't wait to pounce on someone. That dog whistle, it's like a, a frequency that depravity loves. This depraved mind that wants to be thrown into the midst of this division. And how often have we seen it shipwreck churches and shipwreck Christians and make Christians bitter, resentful, damaged people. So those who are depraved in in mind, this is a quality that is inherent within them, which goes right along with deprivation of the truth. They are deprived of truth. Truth is, is wisdom fuel. If you have the truth, if you have the knowledge of, of God and you apply it, that is wisdom. But these are people with nothing in the tank trying to go full speed. They are trying to draw from a well that is empty. They are deprived of, of truth because they're so consumed with controversy. They are so drawn aside by this little thing or this, this quarrel. And again, don't hear me say, Again, I began with, doctrine matters. We are emphatic about right doctrine. But we don't, we don't love controversy. We don't set aside right practice to win an argument. And if someone has this craving, and they are delusional, they won't be satisfied with themselves. They want to draw others away. They usually become very vocal. They usually begin to try to convert people to their position. And It breaks my heart that most of us in this room know a woman who fits this description to a T. And what do we do? We point them to Christ. We try to love them. But we say, don't come back. And we're going to keep praying for you. And praying that the Lord humbles you and restores that, but we cannot have someone in the body who loves division, who loves controversy, who loves arguing, because they will never. Because that kind of depravity will never be content on, on its own, because that constant friction is not among themselves; it's among others. And they even go further. Those in and, and, and Ephesus took it one step further, and it's not unique to Ephesus. But Paul says here that they're depraved in mind, deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So this appearance of godliness, I'm gonna act this way. I'm gonna go for my own gain or purposes. We are getting to Acts 19 in a moment. You're a little ahead of me, but that's, that's where we're going next. Um, I'm gonna do this for my own gain, for my own purpose. So I wanna help you understand um, what's Paul talking about. So we know, and you can turn to Acts 19, Um, Ephesus was the center of pagan worship. The temple to Artemis was world famous, and it was big business. So when you look at Acts 19, Paul was there several years earlier, but you think that now that Timothy's there and and a church is planted, that this is no longer an issue? Look what was going on in Ephesus. This is where Timothy's pastoring beginning in verse 23 of chapter 19 About this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way that's that's a big disturbance now, if it's not little it's big for a man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades there's entire industries created are uh, surrounded around creating idols, and said, men, you know that from this business we have, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dis- 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 disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing." and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. Oh no, she whom all Asia and the world worship. That is it, right at the heart of what is going on in Ephesus. Idolatry in the public square, literally. And you can see how as Christianity begins to bubble up and Christianity becomes popular, you can see now how the teachers would love to infuse that. Oh, wait a second. They're getting rich off of Artemis. I wonder if there's some money in this whole Jesus thing. I want to contrast that with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul could not speak more differently about ministry than what the idolaters were doing in Ephesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. What a beautiful description of ministry. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Notice, they spread division and dissension among those who are deprived of truth and depraved of mind. But the gospel minister spreads the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Who, excuse me, it's a question, is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. This is what Paul is speaking against. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, as what we mentioned earlier, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Praise God! How many times have we seen this throughout history? The Holy Roman Empire, quote unquote, is built on the sale of great gain. Peddling the word of God. Indulgence has built cathedrals, built palaces and fortunes for popes and cardinals throughout history. The paying for forgiveness of sins, paying for time out of purg- purgatory, has built a global corporation. These cards still exist today. When my grandmother died, um, she converted later in life, grew up Roman Catholic, and my oldest aunt and uncle uh, oversaw the uh, service, and they had this long receiving line, and the little old Italian Roman Catholics would would, would come up and hand out mass cards. Here's here, here's twenty five dollars that we bought on her behalf to buy her some time out of purgatory. Like, give us a gift card to a restaurant. At least we can eat. Don't just burn your burn your your, your money. But so many think that I can I can purchase some gain for myself, some eternal security. It's not gone away. What about the temptations of our day? YouTube is monetized. Wait a second. If I focus my ministry on, on controversy, I get more views and I get more money? If I fill stadiums and ramp up people's emotions, I can get paid to do this? If I teach a prosperity gospel if I promise what people desire, if I give them a, a promised return on, the, on their investment, I'll get their attention. There's never been a shortage of people who want personal gain from the ministry of the gospel. The love of money drives so many. And so Paul is not just speaking to the church in Ephesus that is selling literal idols. He is speaking to all, church, all churches throughout all ages who have idol-making factories in our hearts. In complete contrast to this, Josh and I were at a pastor's fraternal um, brotherly gathering of uh, faithful Reformed Baptist guys in in the uh, Southeast, and this could not be further from the truth, further from this example. We met man after man who's ministering in small country towns to 30, 40 people, if that. Men who are driving buses and doing roofing so that they can have enough money to support their family just to keep up preaching so that they don't have to be a burden on the church. I met man after man who cared nothing for salary, who cared nothing for, for, for number, who, who preach with, with, with passion, who shepherd with, with conviction. And I love meeting those guys. That is such an encouragement because it is so far from what the world promotes. And so here's the question to consider. Is the gospel, is serving Christ its own reward? And what is true gain? As we're seeing in just a moment, it certainly is not money, fame, or power. And so as we get into this, this middle section, the heart of our, of our text, I want us to examine our hearts here. And so I'm going to give us some time to do that. Give you some things to think about, to consider, and examine yourself. Because like I said, this applies to every one of us. So moving on, verse 6. But, this is a sharp contrast. It's about as as sharp as it can get. Because right before this, they think that godliness is a means of gain. But here in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. They could not be further from each other. And then Paul is saying how far they are from the truth. We talked about godliness a few weeks ago. This is a term that shows up quite a bit in Paul's pastoral letters. His concern for right doctrine and godly practice. I told you last time I made up a word for this, God-fearedness. Godliness is what emulates God and glorifies God, is what is accordance with what he loves and what he desires. It is a life that is following after Christ, that desires to glorify our God. It is in the name, just like our doctrine, it is in the name of Christ, in the image of Christ, according to the scriptures. This godliness with contentment, contentment is such an underutilized term and idea so I want to talk about contentment. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about contentment in the rest of this. Um, I have a very short definition of contentment. Contentment is satisfaction and sufficiency regardless of circumstance. Satisfaction and, and sufficiency regardless of circumstance. Um, Gordon Fee calls it not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. I love that. Um, but I'm going to go a little bit further uh, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's fantastic. Um, Chapel Library in Pen- Pensacola, you can get these for, for free. Um, but I want to give you his definition. In case you, didn't, in, in case you, you thought, oh, well, contentment's kind of a simple thing, uh, in typical Puritanical style, he wrote many, many exhortations and applications to it. But here's what he says. Here's how he defines it. Christian contentment is that sweet inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me say that again. (laughs) Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, and fatherly disposal in every condition. Every condition. So, how are you doing with contentment? Can you say that? Paul uses the same word in Philippians 4. Uh, Many of you are familiar with this. Many of you have a bracelet or a bumper sticker. Um, But most people do not look at the context Philippians chapter 4 beginning the second half of verse 11 Paul says I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content Okay Paul I agree with you but what does that look like Notice he says in ever in whatever situation I know how to be brought low I know how to abound in any in every circumstance Contentment is not dependent on our situation. It is not dependent on our circumstances. It is not contingent on anything in our lives. Here's what I want you to know, and we'll reiterate this at the end. If you are in Christ, you are given contentment. You have everything you need in him. You lack nothing in Christ. But it does not mean that we don't pray for it and pursue it and grow in it. Here's what Paul goes on to say. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not I can win all games. I can climb all mountains. That's foolish and prideful. This is I can live on beans and rice and tuna fish from a can. Or I can sit in a mansion. And it is Christ's strength. It is Christ who satisfies me. My circumstance does not matter. It is Christ who matters. So I ask you again, how are you doing with contentment? Are you humble with a lot? Are you happy with a little? Can you have everything stripped away from you, knowing that God will never leave you and still know that you have all you ever need? Can you say that? Can you say that eternal treasure is greater than temporary gain? Can you say it with confidence? I don't know if I always can. So we must ask ourselves, do I see spiritual gain, eternal gain, living in communion with and obedience to the living God, my greatest source of peace and security and hope and happiness? no matter my circumstances, no matter my finances, no matter how people recognize me or not, is the love of my God and the blessing of his favor my greatest gain. Every one of us should be examining ourselves at this moment because every one of us has failed in this miserably. Every one of us has affections that goes off in every different direction. And in case you are still tempted to think that you're defined by the number of zeros in your, in, in your bank account, the clothes on your back, or what other people think, Paul takes it a step further. He gives us a New Testament proverb in verse 7. Four this is a comma, this is an illustration to show because case you didn't understand this godliness with great contentment thing for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world here's another question for you will what you hold most dearly outlast this world will what you hold most dearly outlast this world Can you say what Job said? Many of you remember the beginning of Job. We're gonna turn there, Job chapter one, where his whole life is just wrecked. Everything, except his lovely wife, (laughs) is, is taken from him. What does Job do in chapter one, verse 20? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. It wasn't as cool back then as it is now. Um, (laughs) And he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked have I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Could we do that? Could we say that? We haven't been through a fraction of what Job has been through, and man, that's tough to say. If everything you hold dear is stripped away, can you say that Christ is sufficient? If everything you hold on so tightly to, if everything you think defines you is gone, can you say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Brothers and sisters, we ought to say that. Can you rest in him? Can you sing like the hymn that we all love? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. How many of you has it as well been a comfort in times of difficulty? Can we say that? Trials will come. But I remember Christ who shed his blood for my soul. I remember Christ who, as we sung early, he left his throne above. He put away all of his own riches. Put away everything that would have made him comfortable as the God of all gods and walked in discomfort and walked in frailty and walked in humanity and walked perfectly. Tempted and tried in every way. Feeling every pain and hunger and disappointment we felt, yet did not sin in any of it. Can we say that he is enough? That him standing in our place is our comfort, is our identity. Lord, take what you may, but don't take Christ. Can we say that? And if you're still not convinced, Paul goes on in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He doesn't say, with these we should be content. He says, with these we will be content. This is all Jesus had when he walked this earth. Foxes, they don't have a place to sleep. Neither do I. Can we say that? This... uh, Co- this clothing here is literally, literally covering. Uh, so it probably includes some kind of shelter too. Um, but it's all we need. That's all Jesus had. Food and clothing. We live in Florida and AC. We can just slide that one in there. <laughs> if we didn't have AC, most of us wouldn't be here and Florida would be a lot quieter. Um, but seriously, can we say this? Paul is seeking to put our needs in perspective. How many of us have treated so many things like needs? Here's another question. How long is your list of needs, quote unquote? What do you think you really need? The Lord will provide what you need. How many of us have let our wants begin to add to our list of needs? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in here because if we're going to talk about what pleases Jesus, we should probably go to the teaching of Jesus. It might provide some wisdom for us. Luke chapter 12, I want to read, I want to read verse uh, 15, and then I'll jump forward to verse 22. So when two guys are arguing about money, because two guys never argue about money, here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How many of us have believed that lie? So he goes on. Here's how Jesus teaches in application, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Same two things Paul addresses here, food and clothing. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. First, he's going to talk about food. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap and they neither have storehouses nor barn and yet God feeds them. How much of more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? God feeds the birds. Aren't you more value than the birds? Okay, now you're worried about clothing? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. They're not making their own clothes. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You know what he's saying here? The grass dies and withers. If you're in Christ, you will never die. If he protects that that's only here for a moment, how much will he protect and provide for the one he bought through the price of his own son, who will live into eternity? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your Father knows that you need them. Let that sink in for a moment. We act like God's on vacation or something when we run into difficulty. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. How do we battle our contentment? Seek his kingdom. How do we battle our, our, our anxiety and our Our fear. Read the word, trust the word, trust the promises of God. And so what I want us to see here is while this is the positive portion of our text, and while it's certainly true, it is inherent within the text, that while contentment and godliness are friends and they go together, discontentment is also an enemy of godliness. Just like the false doctrine, false affections, false securities, lack of contentment, is an enemy to your walk. This is a great deception. And I would plead with you if you learn and earn and, and, and seek and grow in contentment, envy, divisions, sadness, depression, greed, lust, and the list goes on would be greatly alleviated if we learn contentment. Because every one of these has their root in us being discontent in one thing or another. Financially, relationally, emotionally, mentally, physically. And we seek out all these other things. And the discontentment grows, the discontentment of our heart. And we become an enemy of godliness. So that brings us on to our third and final section. Verse 9. Now this, it kind of ramps it up. Transitions with another but here, another contrast. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This desire is a stark contrast to contentment. This is posed like an addiction. And like any other addiction, that desire to be rich will never be satisfied. It's like this this carrot that is dangled out in front of you that keeps you marching right along. And you can never grab it, but it's always so close. But like any other addiction, just one drink, just one click, and then the next, and then the next, and it will never be satisfied. Arthur Schopenhauer, who's a German philosopher, stated this well, he says, gold is like seawater. The more one drinks of it, the thirstier one becomes. I want us to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There is nothing new under the sun, and Solomon knew this well. Solomon, who was a very rich man himself, saw the futility of his own riches. But man, this could have been written five minutes ago. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, amen, nor he who loves wealth with his income, amen. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Translation, the more money you have, the more places your money goes. And so all you get to do with all your money is watch it leave. But verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Those who are content in, their, in their, their day's labor, there is something sweet in that sleep. I put in a hard day's work, I know what I did, I know what I earned, and I'm done. But the guy who's always thinking about the next thing, the next dollar, the next benchmark, the next thing to earn, you can't sleep because that addiction is driving you. How many rich people are really happy? Ever met one? I've met a lot of them. Not happy ones. This text that we're in, this, this uh, verse here, verse 9, there's a downward progression in it. It's a desire of temptation into snare, into harmful desires that plunge people. It's very vivid, it's kind of working its way down all the way to depths of destruction. There's this picture here of a hunter and a prey, which the scripture uses very often. It's a picture of a rabbit that is enticed by the little bit of bait on the snare, and thinks that's an easy meal. Let me go get the easy meal. And a hunter is his enemy. And when he's driven by his desire, not thinking that there's some, I probably shouldn't walk under the box with the stick in it for this little nibble of food. And then he nibbles and the hunter wins. Brothers and sisters, we are hunted by our desires. We are hunted by our enemies and there are snares everywhere. And they're obvious. But when we are so driven by our desires, we can't see Clearly. Our hunger, our urges drives us. And so likewise, saints, if we are wise little rabbits and we see the temptation of wealth, the hunter looks more like Elmer Fudd. (laughs) How did Bugs Bunny treat Elmer Fudd? What's up, doc? That little chap over there for me as he's chomping on, on, on his carrot? Nah, I don't think so. Praise God for wisdom and discernment. When you see that snare, like, nah. You might, you, you might get some other stupid rabbit, but this is not this one. <laughs> Believers can fall into these traps and snares. And there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of consequences when you do. This is not who Paul's talking about. He's talking about the ones who live this, who desire this, those who desire, this is their, their life goal. Like we talked about last week, if you become a slave to that master, if that's who you serve, you're gonna carry those shackles for all of eternity. You will never be content. It will lead you to ruin and destruction. Here's what Proverbs twenty-eight twenty says. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. And so I must ask what Jesus asked. What good is it if we gain the whole world and forfeit our soul? What good is it? You were naked when you were born. You will be naked in your rotting coffin. Does what you hold most dearly, will it survive this world? Final verse here. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Four, it gives further support to what he's been saying all along. And gets to the root of these desires. Where do these where do these roots stem from? Where do they get their nutrition from? Our sinful hearts. For the love of money is a root of all kind of evil. Where do our love and our affections come from? Our hearts, the center of our being. It's where the root of these weeds grow. So I want you to see over the next few minutes. What you you love, you will follow and you will worship. You will make it your God. And that is why the Lord says you must love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else depends on that. You can't love other people if you don't love the Lord. I love how people love to, love how people the quote, love your neighbor. Do you first love God? Because if you love your neighbor without loving God, they're an idol too. But if you love money, it cannot deliver on what it promises. But it'll keep promising. But it's a liar. And so we, we must clarify here. For the love of money, it's not money. Money is not evil. Money is amoral, not immoral, amoral. It is without moral character. Money is a tool, like a hammer or a saw or a chisel. It's just what you do with it. Money is a tool for you to use. You must not be a tool to that money. It is the love of money, not the money itself. You know how you can tell if you have an unhealthy love of money? How do you act when you don't have it? How do you act when you have a lot of it? How do you act when you have to give it away? How tightly do you hold on to it? And money is not the root of all evil. It is a root of all evil. There are many roots of evil, and everyone begin in our wicked hearts. Because whatever is fertilized, whatever is watered, it will sprout up and it will bear fruit. And so we have to examine our wicked hearts. What am I watering? What am I fertilizing? What root am I allowing to grow up in my own heart? What idols do I serve? Money is an obvious one. But there are many more. And this love, this desire to be rich, this movement in the verse shows a path down to destruction. The end of that road leads to apostasy. Walking away from the faith, denying the truth of the living God. Because just like the one who loves false doctrine, this master will not be content with a little bit of your heart. This master will not be content with a little bit of your affection, he wants it all. He wants you to follow him into death and destruction because that's where he comes from and that's where he will live forever. This language here, the one who has wandered from the faith, who are pierced with many pangs, this is very vivid. It's it's hard to get uh, in the English, but there's a sense of being pricked with difficulties. So think about a person who loves beauty so much that they grab a rose and grab onto it tightly and they don't want to let go and they wonder why they're in pain and why they're, 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 they're bleeding, but they're obsessed with what they think is beautiful and it's just harming them. This is the one who's holding onto on money so tightly. It's beautiful, I love it, as blood is running down their arms as they're bleeding out, leading destruction anyone ever pursued money as an end goal now i'm not talking about just i want to get a promotion and i'd like a better car no i mean like this is your life aim this is going to solve all my problems this is going to make me a this is going to make it god can use me more look at all the stuff i've got god aren't you impressed he's not impressed i've been there I have lived to serve money. Anyone ever been satisfied with it? Me neither. No one ever has, because you can't. It has no life in it, it's dead. And if you give it your life, you will die. This is what Paul's saying here. We don't realize we believe the lie of idolatry that says if my financial situation defines me, if I just improve it a little bit, if I just get a little more money, if I get a little more stuff, if I just improve someone else's situation, if I give them more stuff, they'll be better off. Is that really how it works? Anyone ever got, anyone, anyone's kids ever gotten more toys for Christmas and been better off? No. But we treat money like it's a, like, like it's a fix-all. We know the condition of our own heart, yet we believe the lie. This is what Paul's getting at. I care more about your soul than I do your pockets. Be broke and live under a bridge with Christ. Then die apart from him for eternity. So for our final consideration, there'll be a few slides up on the screen. I want to give you uh, some kind of practical walkaways. There's a lot of questions here. You can take pictures or write them down if you can do shorthand, whatever. But let's just look back over our our three enemies here. When you are trusting or testing, this may be, many of you are are members here, many of you are not. Maybe you're considering this church, maybe you're visiting, maybe you are watching some ministry online, maybe you are more informed by YouTube than you are the the, the scriptures, you should ask yourself some questions. Is Is the teaching of this church or ministry consistent with sound doctrine? Is it consistent with the teachings of Christ? Here's a big one. Does it unite and build up the true church or does it do more to divide it? And does it promote contentment or does it promote covetousness and discontentment? Here's a big one. Does the ministry that you are following or that you love to listen to make you discontent with where you are right now? Does it make you think that Christ is not enough? That I must be more like this person, I must have more of these, these things? Do we want to grow? Absolutely. That's why we get to the next one. So, if you struggle with contentment, there's a lot here. But I hope this is helpful. No, first and foremost, if you are in Christ, He has granted you contentment. How do we know that? Because he has given you himself, and he lacks nothing. Union with Christ is contentment. We're just sinners. Yet, like faith, like our gifts, we can grow in it. We can fan that flame. But we should pursue it, and we should practice it every one of us in this room struggles with being content in some form or fashion. How do we grow in that? Obvious, but here's the first thing we do. We pray. We petition the Holy Spirit for his aid in this. It is a good prayer to say, Lord, I know you are enough, but I don't act like it. I'm driven by my own fears. I'm driven by my own desires. I am constantly complaining. I am constantly murmuring. I am constantly afraid. I am constantly upset. Lord, give me contentment in you. Help me not be defined by my circumstances. That is a good prayer. Then do a little bit of self-triage here. When you complain, when you grumble, when you are discontent, ask why. Don't Don't just bask in your discontentment why am I complaining, why am I grumbling, why am I discontent? And then you ask yourself the next question and you'll get the answer. Where in my complaining, in my grumbling, in my discontentment am I not trusting the Lord? Where in my discontentment, in my complaining, in my grumbling, in my divisive spirit, do I think this other thing is more satisfying than Christ? And right along with it is the next question: Where am I looking for joy? Just like contentment and godliness and friends, contentment and joy are friends. You ever met a content person? We've got a couple in this congregation that like I am just amazed the things that they have gone through and are going through, and they with a smile on their face praise the Lord. I have I have all I need in Christ. Where do you find joy? And finally, here's an easy one. Spend more time thanking him than you do asking him. Here's a a very good cure for discontentment. Create a list of all the things you are, are thankful for. And keep writing until your hand hurts. Start with the air that you breathe. The beautiful sky above you. The birds we get to listen to. The trees we get to enjoy. Food, clothing, family, the gospel, justification, sanctification, adoption, reconciliation, propitiation. If you go on thanking God, Maybe take an account of your prayers. If you were to give a percentage of your prayers, how much of it is, God, give me, I need more of, versus God, you are. I praise you for, I thank you for. Most of us, at best, we are 50-50. We have so much to thank God for. And if you spent time thanking God and praising God, you would not struggle with contentment as much. I guarantee you. Lastly, Last slide here. Are you struggling with the love of money? Here's the question. Do I love the Lord more than my material possessions? Do I love the Lord more than my material possessions? Do I find my value in God's love for me on the cross? That is the greatest expression of love we have ever seen. Again, if you are in Christ here this morning, brothers and sisters, that is your value, not your material possessions. The life of the Son given for you. And if you are here trusting in your possessions, if you do, if you do love money, and you think, yeah, Jesus is okay, but I'll get to him later, you can have all the money in the world, and it is gonna burn like you will for eternity. But Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you have him, you will have him forever. And that satisfaction, that contentment you have in him is just a glimpse of what you will have forever. Am I looking for value in my circumstances? It's an easy one. Easy because every one of us does it. If I only had this, if I only did this, Well, it's not my fault, it's because this happened to me. Can we say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. My favorite proverb is Proverbs 30, 8 and 9, because of my greedy heart. Because I've struggled with a love of money. And I've prayed this many times, and we should pray this many times. We're going to sing this in response afterward. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you, and say, "Who is my God?" Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the—excuse me, um, yeah—deny and say, "Who is the Lord?" Excuse me. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you this morning. God of all creation maker of heaven and earth. The earth is full of the glory of the Lord. May we seek to glorify you in everything we say and do. May we be a godly people who pursue godliness, who put away controversy and division and argument, who runs from false teaching and divisive people, whose heart is content to you always, who loves you and only you above all else, and does not let money or anything else on this earth be our master, because there is no greater master than you. May we be full, faithful servants of our Lord Jesus Christ as we are sent out. May our doctrine accord with his teaching, and may our actions accord with his righteousness that the world may wonder that he would save wretched sinners with idle, factory hearts like ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.